Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to episode 7 of One Step Beyond, a fortnightly show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. My name is Tony Fletcher. In my professional world, I write books and articles, broadcast about, and also play music. In this alternate podcast universe, I explore my personal passions, outdoor activities, travel, and more. On this episode, we go from the Catskill Mountains to the mountains of Colombia in South America with artist Rick Dragon, who gave up a successful business in the USA to pursue a dream of a rebirth abroad. Then we venture back onto the Catskill Mountains themselves with race director and coach Dick Vincent to discuss trail running, a particular love of mine. Inevitably, in both stories, we find ourselves discussing coronavirus. So... Wherever this finds you in the world, and however it finds you, step out or kick back and prepare to go one step beyond. Shaking up your life for the good can take many different forms. And for this episode's feature interview, I talk with Rick Dragon, whose own personal shake-up involved relocating to a different country entirely. Rick is Executive Director of Artisumapaz, a brand new centre for the arts, located on a former cow farm and coffee plantation, about three hours south of Bogota, Colombia. In the years prior to his move to Bogota in 2015, at age 55, Rick had been running a successful marketing company in the Hudson Valley, which gradually consumed the time available for his primary passion of painting. Anyone who similarly tried to balance that necessity of an income versus the need for creativity will know that it's a constant tightrope walk, and Rick finally came down on the side of art. We talked by Zoom at the start of July. I was in Kingston. He was at Ardasumapaz, which has been under coronavirus lockdown since the middle of March. You're somebody that I know, and I do consider you a friend. I'm making no pretense on that. I've known you for about the 15 years since my family uh, moved to the Catskills, and you were very much uh, a part of the, if I may say it, the fixture and the furniture up there. You were well known locally around Chichester, Phoenicia, and then you developed a company in Kingston. You were known as an artist and uh, and for a social media company out of Kingston. And I thought of your life as actually quite static within the region. And then all of a sudden, you're living in uh, Bogota, Colombia. My initial thing, coming from the premise of the show to step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life, um, can you just give us the introduction on stepping outside of your comfort zone? Because from from this end, it looks like a pretty big step. It's a topic I've I've thought a lot about. You know, one day you're in this house. I, I called it my pine box house because I figured I would be leaving that house in a pine box. I was I was happy there. Uh, raising my, you know, with my family, raising my child and living in the beautiful, idyllic Catskills. And I think in a way that I was so focused on business and, and being successful in that world, that another side of myself, the creative my, side of myself, 
was definitely sort of put on hold. I was still making art, but it wasn't my central focus on a daily basis. And I think that that, that side of yourself, if it's repressed for too long, will come out and it will come out with a vengeance. And it did. And all of a sudden, I was like, no, the, the story needs to change. Uh, how do I go about changing? I didn't know I was going to end up in, in Bogota at that time or Colombia or even leave the country. I just knew that I needed to change the story. And I did. How easy is it to extricate yourself from, from what looks on the, from the outside like a successful business? My business life was, to me, to this day, a strange aberration. If you had known me before I was in business and somebody suggested to you that I would be running a business and doing all the things that I did as a marketer, you would have laughed. You know, I was a, a long-haired hippie making art in the Catskills. And the, the internet came about, and I sort of pursued this path of creating websites and then created company that created websites and then that morphed into a digital marketing company and many many wonderful crazy adventures ensued out of that where I ended up traveling the world and speaking and, and teaching at NYU and yes the the focus on art like I said I still had a studio I was still making art but not on that daily basis where you're able to throw yourself into the work as you just said a moment ago, you had no idea you were going to live abroad, let alone in Bogota. So please walk us through how you ended up living abroad and in Bogota. I, I met somebody from Colombia uh, in the Hudson Valley, and I learned of Colombia. I never knew anything about Colombia. I mean, in, in my imagination, anything south of, of you know, probably Washington, D.C. was suspect all sorts of things. But I learned about this country and people from Colombia tend to be extremely, extremely proud of the place with good reason. And so I started wondering about the place and doing a little research and went, wow, it's a very affordable place to live. And by affordable, I mean, it could be less than a third of the cost, uh, if not more, a fourth of the cost of living in the U.S. And ultimately, uh, you know, the idea of being able to move somewhere where it's super affordable to live seemed attractive. And I started thinking about Colombia in those turn, terms and researching it and found that, yes, it, it is a potential place to do that. So I visited. I visited Bogota. And I, was, I had looked at the idea that there's three major cities in Latin America that fulfill three of the criteria I had. And one was that it was somewhat politically stable that it was an affordable place, and that it had a large cultural community. So I had narrowed it down to three cities. You've got Mexico City, Bogota, and Buenos Aires. And I never did visit the other two. I came to visit Bogota, and I discovered what was called Gallery District, San Felipe, and I would walk through that district every day and get to know all the galleries, and I'd walk around, walk around, and really got to know the city. And the city, Bogota, has a certain element of chaos about it. It's very colorful. If you stop and listen, you can always hear some like salsa or Latino music in the background. Uh, it's a little noisy. It's full of people. I loved it. It felt like home. There was an element of it that felt a lot like about the New York that we might have read about, the New York from the 50s, where everybody in the art world knew each other. And that's Bogota. People are super open and warm. 
I felt like in the United States, it was, there was a hostility underlying everything. And even to the point of things are expensive, you know, everything is so expensive to live and you have to work so hard just to pay your primary bills. All of that, unfortunately, is, is very true. Did you have a good knowledge of Spanish when you uh, went down there? I was awful. And boy, did I uh, get a wake up call when I got here, of course. I had to learn Spanish uh, very quickly. Rick mentioned that among the criteria he was searching for in his new home country was that the place be somewhat politically stable. Allowing that Colombia spent most of the last several decades immersed in civil strife, the horrendous violence of which was only exacerbated by the rise of the cocaine cartels, and allowing also that the peace accord was only signed in 2016, I put it to Rick that for most observers, Colombia would not have qualified under his criteria. So Colombia has this, you know, reputation. I think most people, when you say Colombia, they think of the series on Netflix about Pablo Escobar. And by the way, when you visit Colombia, making cocaine jokes or re- re- referencing Pablo Escobar is the bottom of, of gauche. Um, it's just not something you should do. They're a little sensitive about that here. But it's true, you know, up until maybe like 12 years ago, the amount of internal violence, the, the ongoing fight, and it wasn't just one group of rebels against the government. It was the government forces, several different rebel groups, and then a contra, a group that had formed to fight the rebels that in fact became really awful in and of itself and became just as horrible, if not worse, than, than the rebels, the paramilitaries. And so you had all these conflicting groups and an underlying violence through much of the country. But in general, uh, the country has stabilized incredible, incredibly. It doesn't mean that there may not be problems in the future, but as far as you know, a general place of, of safety, I feel very safe here. I feel like when you look at the amount of violence that occurs in the United States, in some ways, Colombia might be even a safer place. In discussing Colombia's specific situation, Rick raised a potential parallel from history, one that I would say can also be found much more recently in destinations like Rwanda, Croatia and Sri Lanka that, pre-coronavirus, were all hugely popular destinations. It was interesting, post-World War II, people, you know, to, to go to Paris, it was a very lovely, wonderful place to go, very exciting place on the art scene there and whatnot. Um, in a way, places that have gone through decades of war, uh, A, they're often very affordable, and so they end up attracting artists, and they can be really wonderful, rich environments at the same time. And I think what's interesting about Colombia is that it's in this post-conflict time, and it's the right time to be here. It's a very exciting time to be here. Rick's sense of excitement eventually extended to the creation and the opening of Artesuma Paz. But such an idea only took fruition after spending a few years establishing himself in and around the Bogota art scene. I I used to teach art. I taught at the Woodstock School of Art. I had really wonderful artists, teachers, myself in my life. So that's always been a part of my background. Um, So yes, I did kind of have this idea of, of something, but something very small and very modest. And after a couple of years in Colombia and Bogota, I bought a car with the idea of sort of driving outside the city and looking for a place that might be a suitable ultimate home. I didn't think I wanted to live in the city forever. 
And so I did that and doing lots of driving around and chanced upon uh, a property that I looked up at as I'm driving down the road. And I said, wow, if that was available, I would want to live there. There was just something about the place that had an energy. Uh, and I say energy sort of like with, with air quotes around it, because, you know, the United States, yeah, we talk a little bit about energy, but energy in Colombia is really, really big. Sure. And I've never been a big proponent of that. But when I saw this property, dang, I, I really did feel there's sort of a bowl effect to the place. And it's just, it feels good energy. Rick had been inspired to the idea of an art center by the examples of the Bauhaus movement in Germany in the 1920s and that of Black Mountain College in North Carolina in the 1930s. But chancing upon that former cow farm, he soon developed a bigger vision. The land itself suggested so much more than an alternative art school. You know, the idea of filling it with land art, of having a place with art studios and perhaps art residencies and the alternative art school. And gee, when you look at the land, it's been sadly used by cow farming and coffee farming for the past 75 years. And, you know, when you do catch glimpse of the native forest, it's incredibly rich. And what if there was some reforestation that took place here as well? And of course, in and this year, in 2020, you have to think about things like sustainability. Again, making no bones about the fact we know each other. And I came to see you 18 months ago and you were just at the point you had, dis you had found this place, but you didn't yet have the lease properly agreed. You drove me out there, but we, we, you know, we didn't go in. We just looked from outside and you were, you were hopeful mm -hmm. you could make something work. Three months later... You opened the place and I am still to this day <laughs> scratching my head in how you pulled that off. This is somewhere that's, um, that's uh, in the triple digits of acres and hectares. It's not, <laughs> it was, um, it's three hours out of Bogota. It's not, it's not linked to, as far as I could tell to easy public transport. How the hell did you pull this off? A, a lot of different things. One, I was very blessed with having created a network here of some really smart, wonderful people. Uh, Co-founder Pedro Crump, the CEO of a marketing uh, office out of Bogota, a global marketing company, had come up to visit me and we talked about, okay, what are we trying to achieve and how are we going to achieve it? And we decided that our main measurement was going to be how do we create the most excitement in these first couple of years? And we're not even trying to be break even financially yet. How do we just create more energy? And we opened up the center to, to volunteers. And that brought in, started bringing in a lot of volunteers, uh, international travelers from around the world. And then we started focusing on volunteers that who were themselves artists and musicians and makers and sort of made that transformation. And we were slowly, slowly getting applicants for the artisan residency program from around the world. And that just continued to build until the borders closed with COVID-19. What is it? That, you know, give, give me the summary. Give me the, like, what you're trying to achieve there. It's funny because my role in the, in the organization, I am the executive director. And, and I have this crazy, audacious dream that we can help the world. 
And you go, well, gee, how does a little art center in, in Colombia help save the world? Well, there's a few factors to that. And one is Colombia is a place that has come out of a lot of violence. And when you really look at the country, when you really look at the people, you see that it's a traumatized country. Perhaps the United States with endless war has its element of strong trauma. But here in Colombia, you can make the case for secondary and primary PTSD is somewhat pervasive. And I do believe that art and art making and art witnessing and participating in art making is healing of trauma. And thus, I think we can have a huge impact here. The audience of artists from outside the country coming to stay here, people come here and the nature, the naturaleza is really, really strong here. It's just an incredible place. As you said, it's in the three digits. We have uh, 286 acres. So as a, a refuge for artists to come here and focus on the art. It's just a wonderful, wonderful place. So that's one group of people. And then we also provide a connection with the local community, and which is very much an agricultural community. And these people have been coming here and sharing. And I think this wonderful combination of, of both Colombian artists and international artists, the local community, you know, we have a, a big impact on the area and what can happen here. To get to just run over quickly what you're what you're doing up there um, in the buildings and it is plural for buildings because you've got there's a there's a main house there's a performance space there's a studio I know you have uh, we're using the word art and it's and and especially because you have been a visual artist there's a tendency to think of painting but your art here encompasses I know you have music equipment there you even have a um, a printing press up there it sounds like from out, outside which is as close as i got that you're trying to embrace all forms of art and artists yes and in fact we've had some really super interesting people who did performance who've been here uh sort of very cutting edge performances already taken place here some musicians we've had some wonderful concerts uh, yes me personally my my heart is in the visual arts is in painting in particular and so of course we have an enormous enormous painting studio communal painting studio with natural light and super high ceilings and all that but no we, we encourage all forms of making from what i've seen of the um the pictures that uh, that you've got up on the site it would seem like you've attracted generally a younger um artistic community it looks to me like most people are in their 20s and 30s am i am i seeing that correctly well i think that has a lot to do with a lot of the volunteers that have come because it does tend to be younger people who are out traveling you know I, there's this entire phenomenon and i wasn't tapped into it before but of a lot of younger people who are sort of tramping around the world maybe stopping and doing some volunteer work so they're not just tourists they're actually participating and living in various areas it's a really cool thing. And there's people who you talk to them and say, well, when were you last, you know, home in Paris? And well, that was two years ago. They've yeah. really been out there. So we've gotten known on that circuit. And so that's attracted a lot of people. Now the artists uh, in residency, we've attracted artists of all age groups. Father Sumopaz was just about to celebrate its first anniversary when regular programming, as we might call it, was suspended due to the coronavirus. The community itself, however, has persisted. Around March 17th, I had a trip into Bogota to, to purchase some you know, groceries and other things we needed for the center. And I went there and 
it was being taken very seriously. Uh, the local cafe, which was normally full of people at lunchtime, just had like maybe three people. The streets were empty. And I'm like, oh my God, they're taking it seriously here. And maybe we need to take it more seriously. And in fact, okay, I think when we get back up to the center on the 19th, we're going to close our doors and put out the word that anybody who's already there is, can stay. But if they leave, they can't come back. And we were getting a lot of messages from some former volunteers and artists and residents that were still traveling around Latin America that were like, hey, can I come back? And so we said, okay, if you can come back by the 19th, you're, you're in. But if not, you can't. At that point, we did get a bunch of people who came back. Um, wow. So yeah, we, we said, okay, okay, if you can get here, you're in. But after that, no, we've got to close our doors. Had the uh, government more or less imposed that March 19th date, or was that, that, or was that a choice that you made? The, well, they had not, which was interesting. And I was very happy to see that Colombia, shortly after that, and it was after the 19th, but within a few days, they said, okay, we're, we're shutting down the country. They announced lockdown here before there was even one fatality. Now, that's on the bright side. On the, on the bright side, the government has done a lot of wonderful things to help uh, counter COVID-19. But on the other hand, it's also a country that really has very, very little, you know, healthcare infrastructure. And you can very well imagine that, you know, when COVID-19 does spread here, it's not going to be a very pretty picture. Talk about, you know, trying to set up some form of intentional community. There's nothing like locking the doors with a bunch of people who don't know each other too well and saying, all right, we're living together until we can open the doors back up. I mean, has that been a positive experience? And, and what would be, um, you know, what would be uh, an average day there during, during lockdown? Well, certainly for us, it's been wonderful. And I'm reluctant to crow too much about it because not everybody out there is so fortunate. And in fact, in Colombia, there is a lot of suffering taking place that, you know, people who are unable to make money and, and work and, and whatnot. And so it's difficult. And without the underlying social infrastructure in place, it's a huge challenge. So we're triply blessed here that we're in this remarkable you know, property with all this nature around us, we have a reasonable amount of food. During our first month and a half of lockdown, we had a chef here from the UK uh, who eventually did catch a flight back home, but we were getting these incredibly home-cooked meals. One of our residents now has taken up this fabulous uh, thing that's, I guess it's somewhat global, but the, the baking of sourdough bread. We are very adept at giving each other space here as artists. We know that, gee, when you need to go create art, leave that person alone. So I think little by little, the entire group has at times taken their space. A couple of people every so often have decided that it's no talk day for themselves and they just want to be silent for the day. And they've done that. Are you still under lockdown there? Very much so. The, the country has closed international travel at least until the end of August. I'm suspecting that it's going to go longer than that. And any, like even traveling to Bogota is not permitted without special letters or something. So what about long-term goals for other Suma Paz? Let's, uh, let's allow and hope that uh, some, some point in the not too distant future, you can open the doors for invitations again. Yeah, where do we go from there? We don't own the property. We only lease it. Uh, we have a long-term lease with the, with the right to buy. So, you know, it's 286 acres and 
yes, we want to purchase it so that we can feel more confident about doing things like installing large scale sculptures, for instance. Uh, the creation of a sculpture park. As I mentioned early, uh, earlier, Art Omi in Ghent has been a big inspiration. Storm King is an inspiration, but it's almost like an over-the-top inspiration. You know, it's like building a battleship. But when you look at Art Omi, it's on a slightly smaller scale. It's beautiful what they've accomplished there. They have a very strong artist in residence program along with an educational program. So in many ways, I, I do feel an affinity for that place. And we want to accomplish those things. Is there an art sculpture park in Colombia? No, there's not. So if we're able to pull it off and create this large-scale sculpture park, we would be unique in that sense here. And when you consider what the impact of such a place could potentially be in cultural tourism, it could really help change the country and, and help change that attitude like, oh my God, you know, Colombia is a dangerous place. Well, no, actually Colombia is a really incredibly beautiful place that is not dangerous, that is blessed with a lot of incredible landscape and, and art making, creativity going on. What are the lessons learned for you about making this enormous step um, in your own life? And is there any uh, parting advice that, uh, again, you could you know, write on the back of a postage stamp for somebody who feels, oh, my God, how did I get into this kind of pattern in my life? And the years are running out and, and I want to I be able to do something. This, this sounds amazing. Well, you know what's funny is those years I was in business, I had a theme song playing in the back of my brain. And it was that Talking Heads song about you might find yourself. You know, what is it? The water flows. Once in a lifetime, one of the greatest, greatest songs ever. Right? And I would be in this meeting in, in some World Trade Center office with some, you know, Jared Kushner sort of person. And like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? You know, why aren't I in my studio painting? And, you know, I did feel that for whatever reason, there was a part of me that if I kept pushing down and repressing, it was going to come out and I would be in crisis. And sure enough, I, I had a great crisis and it required that crisis. So I think in some ways, I think if I ever meet anyone in crisis, I'm like, look, it, it may not be the worst thing in your life as it feels right now. Maybe this is you know, going to lead you where you need to be. The aspects, I think for me, that I've dreamed big. Uh, Arte Suma Paz is a dream much, much bigger than me. And I think after so many years of being in business and you know that sort of thing, having a dream that is not about me, that is about helping a lot of other people is very liberating and wonderfully exciting. I can't tell you. You can find almost everything you'd want to know about Arte Suma Paz at its website, A-R-T-E-S-U-M for mother, A-P-A. Z.org. If you go to its blog section, you'll find an interesting story from the Bogota Post about the center's experiences during lockdown. The Post is an English language newspaper, and if, like Rick when he landed there, you're intrigued by Colombia but don't speak Spanish, I'd like to recommend the long running podcast Colombia Calling, hosted by an expat Brit who does not shy away from critiques of governmental corruption. And for those who know Colombia well, Rick's account of the nation's recent turbulent history is indeed, but I think of necessity, brief and vague. 
The complexities of the violence are hard to unravel in layman's terms, and it was my own, admittedly outsider's perspective upon visiting, that the country was only just starting to get to grips with its newfound peace. By the number of new galleries and the museum exhibits in Bogota, however, it did seem that it was determined to do so. I would like to highlight the work of Doris Sarkedo in a newly converted space called Arte Memoria, literally Art and Memory, we saw her work, Fragmentos, from which Sacedo took the 8,994 firearms handed over to the United Nations by FARC guerrillas following that November 2016 peace accord and melted all 37 tons of it into thick square bricks that form the floor of the new physical space. She invited survivors of the sexual violence that became a sad and repressive hallmark of the Civil War to help shape the floor and in some cases to relay their personal experiences to camera. Sumapaz, FYI, is the name of the region within which the art centre is located, the largest of Bogota's 20 localities. It's thought that the word originates from a Spanish phrase meaning, above all, peace. Okay, I'm gonna start it off a little on the get my rhythm in here and, and then we go. Over the last two episodes of One Step Beyond, I've brought running into the show's equation. In episode five, I featured a high school teacher who embarked on the From Couch to 5K program as a means, along with turning vegan, to address some drastic health issues. And then on episode six, I got out on the track for some speed work talking with local coach Steve Schallenkamp about routines you can include in your weekly running plans to get faster and stronger. For this show, though, I'm off the road and the track and onto the trails. What you heard a moment ago was myself and the legendary Dick Vincent setting off on the last half mile or so of the Escarpment Trail Run course as it approaches North South Lake in the Catskill Mountains. Listen in and be aware of what you don't hear. Traffic. Sirens. Other people. Trail running can get you away from the grind of everyday living in a way that road running cannot. Yet actually, trail running is when I feel most alive. That moment doesn't come immediately. For me, it often doesn't kick in until I've been on a mountain trail for an hour or more. But at a certain point, I find my mind all but empty of everything but the task at hand, and my movement becomes second nature. It's at those moments that to the extent I'm thinking of anything at all, it's that this might be what it's like to be pure animal. That this is our primal status. Still, you don't need to go into the mountains to find trails. You can run off-road by taking to the grass at your local park. You can head to a local rail trail if you have one. Or you may find that there are clear paths through your local woods. Look around. Hopefully, even if you're in the middle of a city, there's something. And if you're just starting out, that's really where you should begin. It took me a long time to progress to the mountains and get good on them. And for that, I do have Dick Vincent to thank in part. I was lucky to be introduced to him almost as soon as I moved to the Catskills from New York City. Dick is the race director of the Escarpment Trail Run. 
which should have been celebrating its 44th consecutive year as the oldest trail race on the eastern seaboard on Sunday, July 26. Sadly, it too recently became a casualty of the coronavirus social distancing restrictions. But Dick is more than just the race's director. Almost every year since its inception, he's also competed in this famously gnarly 30-kilometre run up and down a half-dozen Catskill Mountains, often placing in the front few. He also has a long history of running roads, having competed in the Boston Marathon a dozen times. He's also a USATF Level 3 certified coach and an IAAF Level 5 coach. In both cases, these are the highest levels offered. Naturally then, Dick was my go-to person to talk about the attractions and the obstacles of trail running. What would you say are the, are the, the really distinguishing factors between roads and trails? Well, I, I think with, you know, roads, we're always concentrating on what the pace is at the moment. You know, and especially now with GPS watches, it wasn't so much back in the day because we didn't really... Uh, minutes per mile didn't really figure into it because we couldn't calculate it as we ran. When you get out here on the trails, you're worried about where your foot's going to be. You're not so much worried about is what am I at the mile mark, what am I at the two-mile mark. You're kind of more in the moment, I think, than you may be. Um, sometimes in, in, in road running, and I love road running, by the way. I, I think it's, it's all good stuff. But we are, tend to be focused on the finish, where in trail running, you really need to stay in the, in the moment because if you're thinking too much about anything that's not in that moment, you trip, you fall down. <laughs> so for you, what would the emotional benefits be? I think it helps center me and, you know, road running does too, um, trail running, because it forces you quickly into that moment, you know, to be aware of what you're doing. A lot of times in life you can start one of these things angry, but it, that goes away quickly. And if you are running a trail where you, you can think a little bit, you can clear your mind of all that noise that that creates some of the anger and resentment and stuff like that and make and get some clarity about what you really what really is going on in your life yeah. it's it's kind of like yoga in motion the thought the breath the the body all becomes one again that's a great summary what are the physical benefits of trail running well um if providing you don't crash <laughs> it's a, it's a big provider yeah, it's a, yeah right um, I, I think with it, um, the, the injury issue is the uh, overuse injuries are, are not quite as acute because although it's very repetitive, if you're especially on most trails in, in the Northeast anyway, your stride is always changing. You're stepping left, stepping right over a rock, and so you're not using that absolute same piece of um, muscle or tissue time and time again in exactly the same way. And so therefore you don't wear it out. Your stride's a little shorter on the trails. I think it tends to make us more midfoot runners than heel strikers. Like road running really turns a lot of people into heel strikers. And, and that really creates a lot of trauma that goes up the legs and creates long-term you know, injuries. Somebody says, okay, I want to go run trails. Can you, can you define, is it, define it for me? Well, it's, you know, that's a hard one to define, but I'd say it's not pavement. And... Um, you know, in some areas of the country, I've gone and run trail races, and they're dirt roads. So for me, that's not a trail. Um, but but it's a way that is on a softer surface, or should we say a more natural surface. Dirt in the escarpment, you couldn't say soft because there's a lot of rock here. But uh, it, it's a natural way. 
I was looking at a, uh, a, a, a sense of a definition in a trail running book I have, and I think it had four things. Um, Off-road, natural obstacles. It, it said three out of four, elevation and scenic views. And it said if you can get three out of four, that's, that, that'll count as a trail. So, yeah, and I think it's in your mind what's a trail too, correct? Um, you know, for some people... This, I, I remember there was a very good runner one time, a sub-220 guy that came here and ran a escarpment one time. And at the finish line, he was asked, how do you like that trail? And he said, this is not a trail. <laughs> <laughs> What's the surface we're on here? Well, the, the surface, I mean, this is pretty nice right here. It, it's, it's generally dirt. There's some rock, rock outcroppings. Um, we're, we're on the edge of uh, what they call the escarpment of the Catskill Mountains. There's a lot of roots crossing the trail because there is enough dirt here where trees have been able to root in um some bouldery type rocks sticking up right now we're going across the piece it's just a this is a flat flatter hard rock surface that when i say flatter it's not like concrete there's little grooves and places you can catch your foot but good stuff and now quickly we're back onto some dirt and then again some roots trail running and and ultra running, which is not what I want to talk about here, but it's absolutely picked up in popularity. What would you put that down to? Obviously, the trails are, are what root us all together. I think folks also like the community that's around trail running. Back when I started road running, it was sort of that way. It was a small enough community. You kind of knew everybody. You went to a local race, and you'd, you were familiar with many of the people there. And although it was competitive... At the same time, you were rooting for the people. You know, it's it's inclusive, but because but you choose to be a part of it, and you get to know a lot of the folks, and it almost becomes like a family type of atmosphere. Certainly, an extended family and and a great group of friends, and a lot of these long trail races. You know, people are camping out the night before, and they're getting to know one another. They set up training groups together, and it becomes part of their social life as well as what they do. It's for, you know, an athletic or physical fitness endeavor. You know, you, you are stepping away from the rat race, so to speak. You know, and as the, as the saying goes with the rat race, the problem with the rat race is, is even if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> <laughs> that does raise the question. You've talked about the ob some of the obstacles that we find here, I guess, roots, rocks, um, ascent, descent, and, and, some t and, and we haven't mentioned mud because we haven't seen any yet, but mud can be a factor. And and slippery rocks so most people's uh, most beginners question is going to be dick what do i need to wear on my feet yeah i think the first thing you want to do is you do want to get some sort of shoe that's a trail running shoe that has a good upper that holds you for lateral stability so that you're you're not sliding off the midsole of the shoe and obviously you want to get a, a sole on it that it's got a lot better grip um from there you know what a runner's need is is very uh, it's varied. That's what it is, and and it, everybody has a lot of different needs, and there are a lot of different trail shoes. And so, but definitely a trail shoe over a road shoe, because a road shoe is about propelling you forward, keeping it light. Well, here you need to have you you want lightness if you can get it certainly, but you need to be able to be able to change direction quickly, um, it, it, on different surfaces, be able to get traction, and especially the downhills. I mean, as you know, really you know people first think of running in the mountains they think of the uphills but it's the downhills that that chew you up and spit you out and and certainly you know i've, I've seen the sandals and and that sort of thing 
but when you, you know, I've seen those mostly used in the longer races, but when you get talking about really going fast on rocks, you, you need something more than just, you know, under your feet, um, to change direction and, you know, maybe something with a little bit of a padded toe. So when you kick a rock, it's not jamming your, your toenail out the back of your foot. But it's not just the rocks you can catch your foot on. See, this is the kind of thing right here that you don't, if you don't see it, it takes you out. That little, it's a, a little root sticking up about six inches, five inches out of the, and it's, it's brown, same color as the forest floor, the pine needles. And it's one of those things where very easy to catch your foot on. Yeah, it's very hard to describe to people how it works on the trails. I've had people say to me, I, I, you know, this is hard enough to walk. I can't believe that you would run it. And I sometimes say, you know, I feel a little more comfortable sometimes running because I'm not... When you have those slippery boulders, I'm on and off them so quickly that I don't have time to fall. I watch people hiking and they put like a big hard foot on a boulder that's at an angle that's green with, with slime and they don't have anywhere to go but, you know, but, but over. And Absolutely. You're, you're spot on with that because, you know, you think about it with running. One of the things they talk about with just good biomechanics is, fat of, you know, a shortened contact time. The shorter your foot's on the ground, the more you're, you're moving forward. It's also the shorter your foot's on the ground, the less time you have to fail mm -hmm. and have it slide out from under you. You're pushing her off of it, you know, rather than in on it and slid, sliding along. Yeah, and uh, put the, the, the sense of the, uh, the sort of brain-body interaction, the eye-hand-foot coordination, it's beyond our understanding. It's happening so quickly. I find you tend to have a gaze that's more downwards, of course. You're, yes. Somehow your brain gets used to looking as far ahead as it needs to look to sort of send the signals to your feet on when to lift, when to go left, when to go right. Yes. And you're not really part of that. You're just, you know, you've got to work your way up to it. But at a certain point, you realize that's what's going on. Well, you know, I think what you're, you're onto there is what I feel is one of the talents of the natural trail runner. And that is the vision to be able to look ahead and see a rock 10, 15, 20 feet ahead of you. And in your mind, you already know your left, where your left foot's gonna land. And so you're not looking where your feet are underneath you, you're looking out ahead of you, 10 meters, 20 meters. And of course, as you are, if you're going fast and you're on, as the, as the terrain gets more and more technical and rocky and gnarly, that field of vision shrinks in. But the very talented trail runners are able to keep that expanded view better than somebody that's maybe not so talented and being able to they a lot of people come down this rocky stuff and they're looking where's my right foot going now they okay they put their right foot down now where's my left foot going the trail runner that's got good vision is not really looking where that right foot's going at the time because that decision was made 10 meters before he got there and it's also important to emphasize that apart from your real front of the pack people when you do get onto elevation, which most trails have, most people are power walking at best uphill. On, on the steep sections, yeah. And, and of course, a, the, a person's ability determines how steep that hill is going to get before they power walk. You, you know, one of the things new trail runners have, and I think it's what you're alluding to, is they have this guilt thing if they have to walk. <laughs> you're going to have to walk as a trail runner. We climbed a little bit, haven't we? Yeah, so we far? climbed a little bit, and, and this is a, the interesting part of the escarpment is 
the terrain varies a lot in short periods of time. So we're going to be going down a, a very rocky downhill. Before we're to the bottom of the downhill, it's going to get more smooth just through the pines with pine needles but roots. Then we're going to hit, hit the flat rocks of, of um, going back towards Artist Rock. And then all of a sudden we're going to be in some gnarly stuff again. And it, so you're constantly changing your effort and your concentration and your pace. And it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> well, let's go. Let's let's go. Okay, I'm gonna start it off a little on the get my rhythm in here, and, and then we go. We ran for just a couple of minutes down and along to Artist Rock, which sits on the very eastern edge of the escarpment, overlooking the Hudson River. It's named for the painters who gathered under the 19th century umbrella of the Hudson River School. The vista this July morning was not one you could easily paint. The clouds had descended, it was raining lightly, and there was zero view. It didn't take away from the fun of it. I just all that flight running. Right, and now we'd be back onto some rock. You know, yeah. two or three things came straight to mind there. One is that you do pretty well for an old man. Thank you. <laughs> I'm an old broken man. I was 10 meters behind you before I even knew it. Uh, <laughs> second, second thing, I noticed immediately how our pace, um, the foot pace changed with almost every footstep. Yeah. It was, you know, it was long, it was short, it was left, it was right. Um, it was, we were essentially going downhill, but every footstep was different. This is not like when you lock into a road run and you just go okay i'm running right yes and, and your the trail dictates really that every runner has finds a different groove different abilities give you a different stride length so it means you can change it with that groove is a little bit but the trail is going to determine what your stride is at that moment and like you say i think we changed cadence and stride length 20 times coming down that last minute or two whatever it was yeah we absolutely did. Another thing that came to mind was you almost fell, which yeah. I was going to feel really bad about. Uh, if you don't almost fall, you're not having fun. <laughs> I relate to Dick how just 10 days earlier, running on a different section of the escarpment, I had almost fallen several times and yet caught myself on each occasion. It gets back to this sort of hand-body coordinate. I couldn't quite say what kicked in. I think it's accumulated over the years. Just certain instincts that I slip, but I manage to catch myself. I don't know if there's any actual tip you can give there or whether it just does become something comes with, with experience. You know, sometimes, and I, and I don't know if this is applying exactly to what you're saying, but sometimes, especially in the gnarly stuff, when things start to go wrong, you need to accelerate your way out of trouble rather than decelerate. And, and that's a hard concept for people because... To accelerate when you're already off balance and feel like you're going to go down is counterintuitive. We're hitting a nice flat spot here, and maybe we should just enjoy what, you know, the, the moments I can lose myself are often when, when I, you know, get to a plateau somewhere and there's just pure trail. So do you want to sort of like just jog it and we'll see what our feet do here? We emerged from the woods onto the green at North South Lake, the largest and most popular of the state campgrounds in the Catskills. 
On the last Sunday of July, this would be the finish line for the escarpment trail run, with a covered tent offering food and drink, and volunteers and family members standing on by, offering congratulations to everyone who completes the course. North Lake is just the other side of the car park. It's a great place to soak yourself and cool down after the race. But on any given day, this part of the trail is popular with hikers, including families with small children who relish the challenge of the scramble up to artists and nearby Sunset Rock. I don't know if this is true of every trail, but the Catskill trails are all marked. They have what we call blazers. They have different coloured little badges. Yeah, like the top of a soup can, say, you know, trail marker or a footpath. And that makes it quite hard to get lost. If you set out and the trail is blue, you know, if you follow blue, you're going to be okay. If one, when you're ready to turn around and come back, you follow blue, you should yes, get back yeah. to where you started. That's the basic premise. I don't know that that's what defines a trail per se, but I think it's something that people can look out for. Yes, and, and the other thing is get a map. Always try to have a map. And if you're following a certain color trail marker or, or a trail marker at all, and you go a ways where you don't see one, stop backtrack till you mm -hmm. find a marker yeah. too many times people just keep going and going and they just make a bad situation worse yeah and i've i've actually done that i have trails that are just underutilized um if somebody wants to come out and make a bit of a day of this let's say let's say they want to come out and uh they'll hike what they need to hike and when they find it runnable they'll they'll run it yes, it makes yeah. for a good day how, how much um supplies do you find that you know people should bring with them as road runners we're used to just carrying water with that yeah you probably want to bring some water and depending on how long you plan to be out you can budget your your energy like you would on the road but there's a good chance in the trail you're going to be out for an extended period of time so you want to have a little extra water and you want to have some calories with you too some nutrition and everybody's got a different idea what that is uh you know from a power bar to cliff bars to some people eating jelly beans and some people eat real foods, you know, bring a sandwich or something with them. But it's good to have that because on the trails, that, you know, you, you've, you've, we all know about bonking on the roads. But you can always walk it in when you bonk on the roads. But on a trail, when you bonk, it's just difficult to negotiate even walking. And you, to, so the food will keep, keep that from happening. Yeah. I, have, I was once caught short doing a training, uh, training run for Scarpman over at the other end. I learned you just need to be cautious, just err on the side of caution, because, you know, if you're out trail running, if you're with a friend, you can split the supplies and you're with each other. If you're on your own, just make sure you've got what it takes to get home. Some people are inevitably going to ask, should they bring um, poles onto the trails? Um, you know, that again is a personal thing. I, I personally don't like poles. It's just something else to carry. Um, but a lot of folks love the poles, especially for steep descents. Because they, you know, when they're a little off balance, it helps, and and some of them like it for up uphills. Um, there's a lot of nice different selections with poles where you can fold them up. They're very light, and you can tuck it in your pack. You know, I, I kid my friends that are younger than me when they say, "Why don't I use poles?" I tell them, "Well, I'm putting that off till I'm 70 years old." <laughs> but but a lot of a lot of people use poles, and a lot of excellent trail runners use poles. Well, I want to thank you for coming out. I know that you have a, uh, dis despite being somewhere around what some people consider retirement age, you have a very busy coaching business. And uh, are you finding during lockdown, uh, we've, you know, we've kind of come out of it, where we've had to cancel the big races here. Are you finding that people are running as much as ever, more than ever? Are you as busy as ever? I'm busier than I've ever been. Uh, and, and I think a lot of it is because, you know, I, I athletes are, constantly contacting me because they need a little more motivation or direction um but you know i i live in an area for myself personally where 
I can get outside and do things. And so I've always got something to do. I do not know how people uh, have endured this that live in, you know, in, in close quarters in a city or a town where they're, you know, they got to stay indoors. And uh, so for me, this, this lockdown has probably affected me a lot least than most people. Right. And so the fact a lot that less you, rather should I yeah, say. Yeah, sure. And so the fact that you may be considered up in an age bracket where um uh the, 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 there are meant to be inherent concerns. I mean I just want to end by talking about the health benefits of running because uh age is a number and and uh you, you, you know the fitness that we acquire being out on the trails I'm sure protects us against a lot of ailments. I, I think so and I think that you know the fitter you are and the health the healthier you are the better you recover from something when it happens to you. Words of wisdom from a man who has plenty of them. You can find Dick on Facebook. Just search for Coach Dick Vincent. If you're interested in knowing more about the Escarpment Trail, the race page is escarpmenttrail.com and there are hiking reports to be found at all the major hiking sites. Three years ago, I made a GoPro video of myself running this last mile that we covered in today's episode. You can find that at the show's YouTube channel, One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. If any of this inspires you to get on the trails, share your story. We may pick up on it in a future show. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode was revealed in this nature by Noel Fletcher. The theme song One Step Beyond is by Madness, used with their permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can reach out to us at onestepbeyond at ijamming.net I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G.net you can also find us on all social media. Just search One Step Beyond Podcast. And our website is buried over at acast.com. All these links will be supplied in the show notes. And if you are listening online, please know that you can subscribe and download on just about every podcast platform known to man. It's always great if you want to leave a positive review. And it's especially great if you want to reach out. Whatever you're doing in the world, peace.